Welcome to Fit I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia, and this is episode 17. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For our current event on this episode, we'll be talking about the tragic and infuriating murder of Marielle Franco. For deep thoughts, we bring you a conversation with our parents as they share their immigration stories and their wisdom. For our case, we'll discuss Deshaney versus Winnebago County Department of Social Services, a due process decision born of a tragic incident of neglect that led to a young boy with permanent brain damage. So that before we go on, let's check in. What do you mean by democratizing knowledge? You know, we, we say it every time we do an episode, but what do we mean? Yeah, um, I want to thank the person, oh, dang, I forgot their name, but <laughs> maybe write it somewhere else. Um, Someone emailed us asking what democratizing knowledge meant to us and how we're dismantling the ivory tower. And I felt like those were questions worth answering. um, Yeah. Because they can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And also they're like these big words that encompass a lot of ideas. I think like I like this concept of democratizing knowledge because I was really shocked upon getting to Yale and then also coming to Stanford. how much knowledge is kept within these institutions Mm -hmm. and only shared with the people who work here as faculty and who come here as students. Um, And I just think it's really tragic that you need to expend so much money in order to have that knowledge. And especially when a lot of times these things are analyzing like poor black and brown communities or or directly affect them. So it's like democratic in the sense that through this podcast, which is free, um, anybody can have access to this information that otherwise would be siloed or kept in this institution that is very expensive and that is purposely set up to be difficult for people of color to be able to break into. So that's what it means to me, just um, making this knowledge more accessible. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I'm glad we're clarifying. <laughs> a question about how are we dismantling the ivory tower? I don't have we said that? I don't think we've said that. We might have talked about the ivory tower, I think, in passing. Okay. Where we've mentioned um it being a thing, uh, and the fact that we don't approve and want things to be out of the ivory tower. Yeah. Okay. I agree that we didn't say that phrase because I'm just always very careful about saying things like that, like dismantling the ivory tower, or I've heard people say that they are decolonizing law school. And I I just think it's important for me not to overstep and claim something that I'm not doing. Like at the end of the day, I'm gonna graduate with a Stanford JD and will be using that privilege in in the context of being an immigration lawyer. And it's like, what exactly am I dismantling by doing that? Nothing. (laughs) In a lot of ways, I reify this institution because I am, I, my presence here allows this myth of meritocracy to persist because people say, oh, well, actually there aren't structural barriers for poor Latinx people to go to SLS because Yvette and Cynthia are examples of that. 
Um, so I just, um, that's why I, I don't claim that the work that I do is that. I think that that is my goal, but um, I don't want to be disrespectful to all the people at this institution harms by saying that I'm dismantling it. Yeah, no, I think that's really valid. I think, I, I don't think I would see myself as dismantling it. I do see myself as disrupting, disrupting the ivory tower. Yeah. And I think I, like, to the extent that I do anything to dismantle, I would consider it, like, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to people about, like, how to get in and, I, or, like, things they need to be aware of and, I, like, have written a blog, right, for people who are going to law school for the first day, like, what, like, what that experience will be like, how to brief. So, in in that way, like, anything that I do that it tries to diminish how elite this institution is and how exclusive it is dismantling it, but I, I completely agree that, like, I'm going to leave with the privilege still of this school and everything else that you said. I, it's, it's, it's a difficult line between, like, being complicit while dismantling and I always try to be more on the side of dismantling it but I know that you know to a certain degree I am complicit in all this institution is uh, okay. so I definitely see that too I just think it's important, like dismantling I feel like what would need to be dismantled in this institution like the whole endowment that allows for it to exist um these institutions like Stanford and Yale have um they're like corporations basically even though they're technically nonprofits, and they invest in things like Wells Fargo, that funds the North Dakota Access Pipeline. They are invested in um, oil drilling. Like A lot of really harmful things that we talk about on this podcast are things that the Stanford Endowment is investing in. Um, so that's why I just like shy away from that word. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fair. But thank you to the person who asked these questions. It's like about a really good conversation. Yes. And uh, before we get into our current event, let's not forget to mention our <laughs> studio headphones, um, which I have been using at the gym and have been super convenient. My So I drop my cell phone often, and for a while there, I was being super risque and not had a case on it, and so it's really damaged. And when I'm on the phone, I this can't phone? really... yeah. I can't hear people when I'm on the phone, oh. so I've been using my headphones that That's come really with a nice. mic. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like it like just shuts off by itself. Oh, like apps will close. Like if I'm on the phone, like they can hear me, but I can't hear them. So I've been using my studio headphones to like work around that. Oh wow! So I just like take phone calls either like on speaker or in my headphones. So it's really good. Yeah. Cool. to let you know that because the interview with our parents went longer than we thought because there was such good stuff there we're going to release it as a standalone episode and just so you all know it's also all in Spanish. Um, the two segments that we recorded in this episode um, have we talk about a lot of violent things so just keep that in mind when you're listening or before you listen or when you're going to listen. Yeah there it's important stuff to talk about but we do it's, it's a lot of especially like the case that deals with a lot of violence against a child. So just heads up, think about it, think about the space you're in and whether you want to listen right now or maybe hold off. But yeah, we hope you enjoy and look for the interview with our parents in a couple weeks. And so let's move on to our current event. So first, just, we should just break down what happened. 
Um, Marielle Franco was assassinated at the age of 38 on Wednesday, two days ago. She was a black politician from the favelas of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And she was known for her advocacy related to women's rights and the rights of the poor living in favelas. Said on Wednesday night, there were armed gunmen who shot her in her car in the middle of the city nine times, and her driver was also killed. She was outspoken about police brutality and how it affected the poor and mostly black residents of the favelas. Um, and then for people who don't know what favelas are, they're places where very poor residents have set up makeshift houses on the outskirts of cities in Brazil. It's widely suspected that her death is connected to her anti-police violence stances. Four days before her murder, she called a police unit a murder unit and called, out, called them out for their mistreatment of people living in favelas. Yeah, and just to like kind of add more to that, like widely suspected, like an investigator with the city's police force said that the prime motive appeared to be like her calling out of police for killing innocent people. So it's just, this isn't like, like there's a lot of weight behind this. This is, yeah. even like police investigators acknowledge that this was probably a prime motive. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, can you tell us more about, I think, just reading on her, she was incredible, amazing, yeah. like, this is incredibly tragic. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about more of who she was? Yeah. She was a councilwoman for the city of Rio, and she was elected in September of 2016. She received the fifth most votes, and as such, she became a councilwoman, and she was representing the leftist Socialism and Liberty Party. She grew up in Mare, which is one of Rio's poorest and most dangerous favelas, which is really remarkable um, because there isn't much movement in between socioeconomic classes. So for her to have been born in a favela and then have become a councilwoman is really, really an incredible feat. Rio Council has 51 seats, and she was the only black woman of all the 51 representatives and one of seven women overall. And just to like point out how drastic this is, like Brazil has the largest Afro-descendant population in the Americas, like more than the U.S. We'll talk about this more later, but it's like the percent of the country. Yeah. So the fact that there's only one out of 51 like black women, that's out of 51 seats. That's that's wild. That's so, so bad. Yeah. She, so while she was councilwoman, she was president of the House Committee on Women, and she also led a committee that monitored Rio's military interventions. She decided to pursue human rights because she lost a dear friend to gun violence in her favela. And this is something that I found particularly sad. Um, I think I've been thinking about all of the very wealthy and white people that work within the human rights apparatus. And then there's a person who is leading this movement who's directly affected by these issues. And the person who the police gunned down is the person who's directly affected by these issues, not the person who's made a career out of this because it's an interest or a hobby. Um, she experienced trauma from living in the favelas and then she empowered herself and her community. And I think that this loss is such a serious one. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, you mentioned the military intervention that's happening in Rio. So I just wanted to give more context to that and what's going on in Brazil right now. So a month ago, President uh, Michel Temer, he signed a decree that gave the military vast powers to, quote, restore order, end quote, in the state of Rio de Janeiro until the end of the year. 
And so this is actually, this is a huge deal. This is a huge problem. This is the first time since the 1980s when Brazil like transitioned out of a military dictatorship that a constitutional provision giving the military primary responsibility for security in a state has been used. And it has a lot of human rights organizations worried because the military is trained to defeat enemies through force. Yeah. It's not trained to protect civilians. Like, And we can't even argue how the police, even them who are supposedly trained for that, are super ineffective about it. So clearly their training is not even great. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, some, officials, some officials from the United Nations actually made this point in a public statement. So that's that's like the level of concern. Like the United Nations, like people are aware of this and like are concerned. And a lot of people suspect that just human rights violations are going to continue to increase. And it's one thing I found interesting that I'll just note is that even like military leaders have expressed concern about this approach. That's how you know it's bad. Yeah. So it was, so I just, that's the context of what's going on in Brazil because of the high murder, violent death rate in Brazil and it's specifically in, in Rio de Janeiro. So the response to Marielle's death has been very strong. Uh, there were vigils and protests that sprang up across 20 cities in Brazil and a lot of activists are being really intentional about messaging this as being a death that's in the context of a larger issue that Brazil has the genocide of its black citizens. This isn't some random event. Uh, This is a part of a pattern that the state of Brazil engages and regularly engages in state violence against its own black citizens. Uh, And I think the people of Rio especially were really heartbroken. There were thousands of people who gathered at her vigil outside of council chambers and she was buried last night. Last meet of her said that, quote, she died because she was a combative black woman. Uh, she was, this was a college classmate of hers, and she said that she was executed because she was a black favela dweller who fought against the murder of black favela dwellers. The genocide of the black population continues in this country. I also want to point out um, President Michel Temer's like, videotape statement that he made in response to her death because he said, and I quote, these gangs will not kill our future and that it was her death was further proof of the need to step up efforts to pacify Rio de Janeiro. And that's so perverse because he's using her death to further measures that she opposed. And it ignores the reality that like the gangs that he's describing are likely government agents. Mm. It's so incredibly like reminiscent of things we've talked about on this podcast before, where we talked about how dictatorships, like autocratic regimes, regimes, will exaggerate or create an eternal threat to justify more like state control and violence. And it's just so sick. Like this, like this is it, folks. Like it's happening live. Like this is what it looks like. Like we're gonna read about this in like 10 years in history books, but just be aware that this is what it looks like in real time. Yeah. And to connect this to the American context, this reminds me of Jeff Sessions' rhetoric about MS-13 and the asylum seekers from El Salvador that are arriving here. It's a twisted distortion of the truth because um, you play, you switch the victims and the perpetrators where the asylum seekers are the victims of gangs, but you're flipping it and portraying it as if the asylum seekers are the ones who are perpetrating violence. And in this instance, it's like you're the government agents, the government police are the perpetrators of violence and um 
you're flipping it and making it seem like actually they're the ones who are going to protect the city. Do you want to talk a little bit more on like what you mean when you say genocide going on in Brazil? Because I feel like a lot of folks will think that's really like strong language, a strong yeah. word to use, I guess. Yeah, um, it's definitely an appropriate word to use. So 50%, like Cynthia mentioned earlier, 50% of Brazil's population is black, but black people account for two thirds of murders in Brazil. And it's grossly disproportionate considering um, the population of, of Brazilian black people. Um, and then specifically for young black women, they're twice as likely to be murdered as compared to their white counterparts. Why do you think this is happening in Brazil? So it's obvious, but just to spell it out, this is anti-blackness. Um, but then specifically, the black community is economically disenfranchised in Brazil. And then as such, they're overrepresented in the favelas. And those are the areas that police patrol more often and where they feel more free to murder people and use excessive force. I'm sure that that sounds very familiar to a lot of people. Police are a huge issue in Brazil. Last year, they killed a thousand people. And lastly, if you want to know more information, more updates, you can follow the hashtag, hashtag Mariel Presente. Yeah, well, I'm glad I'm glad we talked about this because it's it's really awful and and just killing like human rights leaders is it just really shows where we are in this point in time in our world history. Yeah. So before we get into our case, um, we also we just wanted to again give another shout out to our studio headphones. And if you're in the market for some nice pair of headphones, definitely look into them. And if you buy them, use Cerebronas mm -hmm. at checkout for a discount. to talk about DeShaney versus Winnebago County Department of Social Services. It was decided in 1989, and the plaintiff was Joshua DeShaney's mother, Melody. The defendant was Winnebago County Department of Social Services. Cynthia, do you want to go over the facts? Or some of them? No, well, I'm going to go into all of them because I think yeah. it's important to show exactly what the... this. The fact record on this is really rich, and I think it's this. This we need to talk about them. Mm -hmm. um, and just for folks, I'm going to say DSS instead of saying Department of Social Services, but that's who I'm referring to. Okay, so Joshua lived with his father Randy uh, since he was like about one years, one year old, a year old, because the court granted Randy custody during divorce proceedings. So Joshua was living just with his father. And so in 1982, the state learned of abuse when Randy's second wife complained to the police that Randy hit Joshua. And so DSS interviewed the father, he denied the accusations, and DSS did nothing else. That was 1982. In 1983, Joshua went to the hospital with multiple bruises and cuts, mm -hmm. so the emergency room personnel suspected child abuse and sent in a child protective team, which included DSS caseworkers. And so, in that instance, Joshua was placed in the temporary custody of the hospital. But the child protection team decided there wasn't enough evidence of child abuse to keep custody of, of Joshua, so they recommended his father get custody back, and the, and the court like gave him custody back. A month after this, 
the DSS caseworker was notified that Joshua was in the emergency room again for suspicious injuries. Again, the caseworker found no basis for action. For six months after that, the caseworker made monthly visits and saw several suspicious injuries on Joshua's head. She recorded this in her file and noted her suspicions that someone was abusing Joshua. In November 1983, the emergency room personnel again notified DSS, DSS that Joshua was treated for injuries. And so the caseworker visited his home two times after this, but was told that Joshua was too ill to see her. And, he didn't, and she did nothing. So now in March 1984, Randy beat Joshua, who was at this point four years old, so severely that he fell into a life-threatening coma. And he, the, the medical staff found that he had hemorrhages caused by traumatic injuries to the head over a long period of time. And so he suffered severe permanent damage, and he's, he was confined to an institution because of it. And Randy, the father, he was convicted of child abuse. And so this case is against the Department of Social Services. And the issue was for the court to decide was, does the state's failure to protect an individual against private violence constitute a violation of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment? And so the claim was that by failing to provide Joshua with adequate protection against his father's violence, the state deprived Joshua of his liberty, interest, and freedom from unjustified intrusions on personal security. And just as a note, this is a claim under substantive due process, which is different from other cases we talked about, like Goldberg versus Kelly in episode 12, which was about procedural due process. Um, so just, just to be clear. Yvette, do you want to get into what the holding was? Mm-hmm. The court held that the due process clause does not impose an affirmative duty on the state to provide services to the public for protection against private actors if the state does not create those harms. The, this is a quote from the holding. The clause is phrased as a limitation on the state's power to act, not as a guarantee of certain minimal levels of safety and security. While it forbids the state itself to deprive individuals of life, liberty, and property without due process of law, its language cannot be fairly read to impose an affirmative obligation on the state to ensure that those interests do not come to harm through other means. The court also held that there is no quote-unquote special relationship that was created because of the fact that agents of the state, the social worker, had knowledge of this danger. Should we go into the reasoning? Yeah, so the majority of the court decided that the the purpose of the due process clause is to protect the people from the state, not to ensure that the state protect them from each other. And so it lists like various cases in in the past where they made it clear that the government is under no obligation to provide aid. And so just to list them out, the, they, found that, they have found that there's no obligation to fund medical services. There's, it's very timely. <laughs> there's no obligation to provide adequate housing. There's no obligation to provide substantive services of any kind. And so the government only has a responsibility in a few cases, like when it incarcerates people or involuntarily commits individuals, which the court sees as taking someone into government custody to care for people. So those, when the government has custody of someone, those are the only situations where the court has seen the government having an affirmative obligation to the person. Yeah, it's pretty limited. 
but that's not the way it has to be, which is what's so frustrating because so um, Justice Brennan dissented and I thought his dissent was super clear and I, I recommend for anyone who wants to read it to read it because he finds the court's distinction between action and inaction and like positive and negative rights found in the Constitution incorrect and much more blurrier than the majority makes it to seem, which totally makes sense when you think about like how you could switch something from being action versus inaction. It's a matter of framing. framing. And so he takes previous cases together to argue that a state's prior actions may be decisive in analyzing the constitutional significance of its actions, of its inaction. So he's asking for the court to like look at the context, right? Like if the state has done something previously that that might impact what its obligations are. And so in this specific case, Wisconsin had set up a system in which its laws directs citizens and other government actors like the police to depend on the local DSS to protect children from abuse. So that means unless DSS acts, no one else will. And so I think this is why I found that this supposed distinction between private violence and state action so strange here because actually like facts in this case seem like a really strong counterexample of how that dichotomy isn't a clear one like what Brennan's dissent is arguing like yes it was Joshua's dad who was violent but it was the court that granted this man custody of the child in the first place and then also it was Wisconsin that had created this department whose work is very visible, right? People in the hospital didn't take further action because they thought that their job was done in reporting this to the social worker. Maybe if that apparatus hadn't been in place, then they would have done something more, right? But it's because they expected that DSS was going to do something that they didn't. Yeah, I I actually, like, I I love that you bring that up because when I learned this case, I learned this case as part of torts in my first year. mm -hmm. Um. And I brought that point up to the like my professor because I was just why doesn't why can't the court look at all government agents as one government because the reason Joshua's father had custody was because the court gave it to him back in those divorce proceedings, and like he was just like oh no but those are like separate branches like that's nothing to do I was like we that's like a legal fiction like the reason Joshua lived with his father is because of the court which is part of the government, I get that that's not. That wouldn't be decisive for all cases because I'm sure there's places where I would want the government to have an affirmative obligation that like don't start with the court like giving someone custody. But I thought that was significant here, and like my my professor was just like, ah, that doesn't matter. I don't understand why the branch of government would be relevant. Yeah, yeah, he was just like, oh, they're separate. I was just, but it's still the government. Like this this is the government's, anyways. I also appreciated that Brennan, he just was very blunt, I guess, in his in his whole dissent. And I, I thought it was appropriate that he included the quote of the social worker who was like caseworker. Her reaction to the news of, of Joshua like in a coma was, and I'm quoting, I just knew the phone would ring someday and Joshua would be dead. It's sad. It's like, this is your job. Like, this, you were the caseworker assigned to his case. Like, that's what you thought. That's what you knew. Why didn't you do anything? And it, why isn't the government responsible for the fact that you, a government agent, didn't do anything? Yeah. This is, his descent is one where he starts, poor Joshua, right? I can't. 
remember. I think it is. I read I this case in undergrad, and I remember that my professor pointed that out because it's pretty strange for uh, an opinion, a judicial opinion, to start out that way. But the first sentence is "Poor Joshua!" Exclamation point. I don't. I don't see it. It's okay. I found it. It's Justice Blackman who also dissented, but it's the start of his um, last paragraph. Okay. So, yeah, that's in there. Cool. Something else to note that's kind of frustrating about this case is that so the Supreme Court wasn't deciding this case on its merits. The, that wasn't the issue here. Joshua's mother was fighting the summary judgment that this district court provided in favor of DSS. And so the summary judgment, for folks who don't know, is when the court decides a case in favor of a specific party without a full trial. Before like witness statements, like evidence, the court just looks at what they have before them and decides like the case is so obvious that I'm going to decide who wins before anything else happens. Mm -hmm. And so, and Justice Brennan pointed out that because of this, Joshua and his mother didn't have the opportunity to show that DSS's failure to help Joshua was arbitrary and to like hold them accountable for that. I, so last night I was reading, or I was reading, I was watching um, the latest few episodes of This Is Us. And do you, did you start watching that? I do. I'm, I'm all caught up, but spoiler alert for anybody who's not all caught up. I, don't, I actually don't even know if I'm all caught up, so you don't spoil me either. No, this is, you're pretty caught up. <laughs> um, and it features Deja, who's a young black girl in foster care that um, Randall and Beth adopt, or are considering adopting there's like a whole dramatic storyline around that whether or not they are going to adopt her or not and i just thought that the episodes were interesting because they show how complex this issue is because they show how terrible her experiences were in foster care where she was beaten by an alcoholic foster father and um, they showed uh, a foster sibling of hers who she got to be close with but who she was eventually separated from um, and that little girl was talking about how she, I think at that point she was nine years old and she couldn't count how many beds she had slept in because she was moved around so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also show that like Deja is hurt every time that she's separated from her mother, but at the same time her mother's home isn't the best place for her. And I wanted to bring this up because I feel like there are multiple sides to this coin. I don't want people to come away from this discussion drawing the conclusion that state intervention into the private lives of individuals is necessarily and always 100% the best thing, especially because we need to bring up that DSS has a history of separating poor, especially black children, from their families, and that sometimes what is best for the child ends up being a very subjective analysis. Um, And like historically, it wasn't DSS at the time, it was like some, but it was social workers, this was in like the 1920s, were used to police immigrant mothers and their parenting styles. Yeah. Um, so I just think that it's like social work is a very interesting place in our history. And um, I can't imagine why social workers today would have a different role than they did then. I, I think it's important to keep that in mind. Um, and actually, when, when I read this case in undergrad and we were talking about it, it was really interesting because a student who's from South Korea shared that she found this whole case super bizarre because in South Korea there is no such thing as like a social worker or services if a person if like a person were in this 
situation where a child was not properly taken care of, then the expectation is that extended family would take care of the child. Or mm-hmm. um, And I thought that that was interesting, too, because um, I do often think that like extended family oftentimes are the best option for placing children, uh, uh, you know, instead of like being kept in a public shelter or um, being taken to different foster homes where people have like differing incentives for why they're fostering. Not, I don't want to paint an inaccurate picture because I think that there are great foster parents, but the reality is that like a lot of people are doing that because they want to make, they get paid and they want money from, from fostering. Um, just something to think about. I think that there's, there's different ways that I think that the issue here is that there are parents who are, are not equipped to take care of their children. And so then the question is, what do we do about that? And I think that that's like a really complicated discussion that um, this case shed some light on, but I think it's not the end of the discussion. Yeah, no, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I, this for me, like, yeah, no, like when you look into foster care, especially in California, it's like a shit show. It's, 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 it's bad. I'm not going to go into it now, but it's bad. And so, but this case is so important because like, if on these facts the court was unwilling to find any affirmative responsibilities on like on behalf of the government to its citizens then since this like there's hardly been any cases where people oh there's affirmative obligation for the government to do this like it's you you can't hold the government accountable for not doing something that we all would think it should be doing and it's and it goes back to a lot of it on this case and and so just for me, it always brings me back to the question of like, what is the government for, if not to act like? What is the government for? Yeah, it's it's just <laughs> if you can't, if the government can't protect a a child who's being abused by their father, who for whatever reasons the mother she doesn't come into the picture until afterwards, like for whatever the situation is, then what is the government for? Like, what what are we doing with it? Like, what is it for? If the government can't provide medical services to its population, if it can't provide, like, like services, basic services, what is the government for in that case? And so I, I just, that's what this case makes me think a lot about. And I also want to compare it to, like, our international human rights framework because this isn't the way it has to be, like, by no means. And so in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, it has held, in this case, I'll, I'll link to it in, in the blog, that states are responsible for private violence against citizens if they create an atmosphere of impunity. And so, like, what that means is the, the government is allowing this to happen, and it's, like, creating an environment where this goes unchecked, then, like, the government is responsible. And so we, we can live in that world, and, like, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights has, like, set up a framework for that world, but the U.S., like, on many human rights issues, is just not on the same page. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious, what, what would your ideal remedy have been in this instance? If the government, so let's say the, let's say the court had ruled that the government has an affirmative obligation, like, what would that mean apart from people being able to collect damages in court when the state does not meet its obligation? I think it would have meant, for this specific case, it would have meant just monetary compensation for the parents, but I think it would have meant that when state agents, and not just DSS, but other branches of government, were giving levels of service that were inadequate and negligent, 
you could threaten them with suing them and like hold them accountable. I like that. I like being able to sue the government. I yeah. agree. <laughs> yeah, because like be- because of this, like you can't sue the government for doing a bad job because it has no responsibility to do the job in the first place. So it's okay if it does it awfully. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. The remedy should be we should be able to sue. History of the Second Amendment by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. She breaks down the white supremacist history of the Second Amendment. That's all I'm going to say for now, but stay tuned. Cynthia, what's your recommendation? So based on like what your comments earlier, um, I, I want to recommend the idea of people adopting and or fostering children mm-hmm. because I like that's something that when I feel like I'm stable in my life mm-hmm. and like when I would when I get to a stage where I start to consider children at any point like I've personally committed to adopting or fostering instead of having um children mm-hmm. barring like a like an ultimatum if I have like a life partner you know like dang I, oh my god that's intense well, well I guess that's fair to make to somebody if you really don't want kids you just don't want kids well like no but if no but if someone if I was committed to someone who wanted me to have an like to have a kid with me? Oh, I misunderstood. I, that. Yeah, I wouldn't for like I like w- would not close the door on that entirely. Like uh. I just don't think that's fair to do until like I have a conversation with with this imaginary person. But like to the point where I want children and went in my life single whatever. Like I've personally made that commitment, and I just encourage people to think about it. Like think about you know what you're looking for in having a child what like the differences between fostering or adopting a child versus having one for yourself and just whether like those reasons um you know whether it might not be worth considering something that you might have not otherwise so i just want to put that idea out there and recommend people just sit with it cool um and so i wanted to plug our social media which we haven't done in a while um, but you should follow us on Instagram at Citaronas, Twitter at Citaronas, and you can also uh, find our Patreon on our website, Citaronas.com, if you want to become a monthly supporter. Um, this podcast is a labor of love. This is something that we do while we are full time students taking out expensive loans in order to do this lawyering work. And we are very grateful for any support that you can give us. If you don't want to do monthly contributions, you can also Venmo us, also at Citabronas. And of course, you can also support us by buying stickers and bookmarks, similarly Venmoing at Citabronas and including your desired shipping address in the request. Also, it would be really, really nice if people could review us on iTunes. To be honest, like the past few reviews have been a little lackluster and a little disappointing. Like uh, rude. Like just rude. <laughs> like one, I hate when people are like, oh, you say um and shit. It's like keep your respectability politics like off my body, off my speech. <laughs> like the fact that I say um does not mean that I don't know what I'm talking about. In oh. fact, I am incredibly intelligent. <laughs> You can ask anybody who's ever met me. The <laughs> fact that anybody I, who's ever met me. Literally. The fact that I say um does not at all speak to my intelligence. I just honestly, I feel like the person who wrote that is like totally a cis heterosexual man who's just like, <laughs> shit. Old, who like regularly patronizes women. Yes, I agree. You know, although, okay, okay. You know, we're always open to constructive criticism, but I just, I feel like the 
the review was a little out of pocket. So anyway, review us on iTunes, leave us five stars, and please, because I know, I know, I know that we have a lot of listeners that really love us, so if you could just please show us a little love on the iTunes reviews, that'd be great. Well, Yvette, go enjoy your Friday and your job confirmation. Have a fun Friday. I'm going to go study for finals. Oh, that's sad. (laughs) Bye. Hey, yo, my dog's